Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, North Bible Church. My name is Adam Knight, and I'm the pastor of students and young adults here at North. First of all, I wanted to say congratulations to the Anderson family, uh, Aaron and Amber and, and, and little brother Isaac are welcoming in baby Hazel to their family this week. We can't wait to meet her, and I know that uh, Grandma and Grandpa Anderson must be beaming as well. So congratulations to you guys. Everyone else who's tuning in online, thank you for you know, putting your Hamilton viewing experience on hold right now, or however else you're, <laughs> you're celebrating the holiday weekend. We're, we're grateful to gather together online. Um, we're continuing our Crucial Questions series this week. And I think we're in for a treat as uh, on this Independence Day weekend, we're going to answer the question, is it ever appropriate for a Christian to break the law? And so we're, we're not really talking about like speed limits or, you know, rolling through a stop sign or anything like that, because those are more like, you know, uh, personal inconveniences and I hope no one catches me kind of, a, kind of a thing when you're breaking the law, if you're breaking the law when you do that. Um, certainly not me. <clears throat> but what, I, what I'm talking about this morning is nonviolent civil disobedience. I'm talking about this moral and ethical choice, intentional decision that we make, that uh, we're taking a stand to protest against an unjust law. I've been thinking about this passage a lot lately. It's from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And it says, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so as we approach our crucial question this week, we're going to be looking at different relevant ideas, you know, concepts like biblical authority, uh, the discipline of, of Christian submission, the supremacy of Christ, and even the sin of idolatry. And I do want to say this like right up front, right off the top. I'm, I'm not standing up here um, kind of fomenting insurrection or encouraging lawlessness, you know, based off of an uh, incorrect or immature reading of the Scripture, reckless or irresponsible. That would be pretty, pretty scandalous. Um, after, after this week of just studying and Googling different variations of the, you know, phrase breaking the law. I'm sure I'm already on some watch lists, so I, I do want to be careful about what we say uh, from up front here. Uh, but I do want to be faithful to God's Word this morning. So I'd like for you to consider what it is that you are most devoted to in your life. What are you most devoted to in your life? When you think about your passions, what gets the spotlight? Could it be your family? Could it be your job, your career? Could it be your hobbies that you're devoted to? You spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, it could be film. It could be um, sports. Maybe it's uh, your reputation. 
you, th- you kind of see when, you know, pastors start to walk you down this road. It's a little bit of a setup, right? right? And so the, the question I want to ask you, are you devoted, most devoted in your life to the kingdom of God? Because that's kind of going to frame our mindset this morning as we consider the question, is it ever appropriate for a Christian to break the law? Some of the things that I listed aren't even necessarily evil things, They're not bad things. They're good. They're important. But sometimes we take these good things and we make them ultimate things. And that's the definition of idolatry, where we idolize something, we we pursue something, we think about something so much, we center our lives around something that ends up displacing King Jesus off of his rightful throne as the ruler of our lives? Are you most devoted to the kingdom of God? This is a question that has to be answered on a a, a daily basis because so much of our Christian experience, I've experienced it. I know so many friends of mine have experienced like this initial passion and fervor for God where we're serving Him. He is the ultimate. He is reigning supreme in our life, but then one day we wake up and we feel like we have drifted we're not as close to the Lord as we once were. Maybe we've made an idol out of something that has displaced God in our lives, even now. And I want to remind you this morning, I want to plead with you this morning to not forget about your first love. And so let's keep this idea of devotion at the forefront of our minds this morning as we tackle Our crucial question, is it ever appropriate for a Christian to break the law? And so think with me right now, um, brainstorm in your mind at home or wherever you're at, maybe you're watching on vacation, whatever, wherever you are, think along with me, what could be a possible motive or a possible reason why it would be appropriate for a Christian to break the law? And uh, I don't have a lot of people in here. I would normally ask for, you know, participation or feedback, but I was trying to think of some answers that people might say, right? Uh, I would break the law if someone else was being persecuted. I might break the law if I was defending religious liberty. I might break the law if I don't think that law applies to me, right? And we start to wade into these, like, ethical dilemmas. We try to weigh our decisions. What's more important here? You know, the classic ethical question, would you steal a loaf of bread in order to feed your impoverished family? I mean, you can think of so many different others maybe that I didn't even list. But what I want to do this morning is boil all of these motives down to one simple reason. One simple reason why we as Christians might find it appropriate to break the law. And that would be simply, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. Will you follow Jesus no matter where he leads you? No matter what the consequences are. No matter what the destination is. No matter what is the cost. It's a pretty radical question. But Jesus puts it in pretty radical terms Look with me to Luke chapter 14 as he challenges his his own disciples about counting the cost of discipleship. He says, If anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Are you more devoted to your family, to your children, than you, than you are devoted to God? If so, that's idolatry. Jesus doesn't want us to actually hate these people, right? He doesn't actually want us to um, despise our family or treat them horribly uh, because we know in other places of the scriptures, he commands us to love everyone, even our enemies, even the people that would hate us. Um, but the gauge is there. The measurement that, that Jesus is setting up for us is that God is up here and everything else can fall into place underneath the supremacy of our Lord. Do you have that level of devotion to God where family doesn't rival God's ultimate spot in our lives? Are you willing to forsake everything that you hold dear in order to follow him? If you answered yes to that, questions, to that question, uh, I do want to say that your devotion is correctly ordered and uh, your obedience to Jesus does outweigh all other worldly considerations. I want to say, you know, congratulations, you've been pre-approved for civil disobedience, but that kind of feels awkward, so let's just move on real quick here. So we're going to go through a brief history of people throughout, you know, not only Scripture, but um, following the New Testament on into the present day and look at where believers have engaged in breaking the law as they took a stand for their faith. Rewind back over 3,000 years ago in the land of Egypt when the Hebrews were enslaved and the Pharaoh decreed that every Hebrew boy that was born was to be thrown into the Nile River. And so, Mothers all over the land of Egypt, Hebrew mothers, defied this law. Moses' mother broke this law in order to save the life of her child. What's her motivation? Simple life and death. It's that simple. What about uh, later on in Persia when Esther was the queen and her husband, the king, signed this law that was essentially a, a planned genocide of the entire Jewish population that, that lived in the land of Persia. Esther risked her very life to go into the inner court before the king and protest and plead with him to change this law. In fact, the king held her very life in his hands. The, the law stated that if anyone approached the king in the inner court, uh, without his uh, approval, they could be put to death. And Esther risked her life to break the law and to protest what she saw was injustice. In ancient Babylon, during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, there were multiple Jewish uh, people, Jewish exiles, who broke different laws on the basis of their faith. You may remember the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men refused to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, and they were sentenced to death for their disobedience. They were sentenced to execution in a fiery furnace, and they never wavered in their devotion to God, 
even in the face of this torturous execution. A few years down the road, still in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar was placed by King Darius, and King Darius made it illegal for Jewish exiles or anyone in the land of Babylon to pray to, to God or their gods or any other man besides the king for a period of 30 days. And this law was kind of deceitfully crafted in order to trip up one person in particular. That was Daniel. Daniel knew about the law. He knew about the punishment. And he defied it anyways, causing him to be thrown into a den full of lions. The implication from these Old Testament passages isn't that these individuals sinned because they disobeyed the law. In fact, it's to the contrary that these individuals honored God and did not sin because they broke the law. Moving into the New Testament, there's 27 New Testament books, and four of them were actually written from inside a prison. Right? Paul spent a lot of time in prison. Peter was in prison. Silas was in prison. Stephen was arrested and executed. And all of these people were faithful to God. They were breaking the law when they traveled into different towns and cities and proclaimed the good news of Jesus. And I do want to note here that um, despite these initial acts of disobedience that these biblical figures have committed, these, these crimes that they have committed, all of these people still in their own way were submitting to authority and respecting the law as they accepted the consequences of their actions, being thrown into prison, being thrown into the fiery furnace. They respected the consequences of their actions. Did you know that there's even a debate today on whether or not Jesus broke the law? Some people say that if Jesus lived this perfect, sinless life, then it would be impossible for Jesus to have broken the law. But I'm not persuaded by that argument. We know throughout the scriptures, throughout the gospels, that Jesus, um, he healed on the Sabbath. He allowed his disciples to, to pluck grain from the fields. He had contact with people who were unclean. And you might uh, kind of uh, disagree. You would say, you might object and say, these are merely religious customs. That doesn't really fit into our discussion on civic law. But consider this, that Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire as an insurrectionist, as a revolutionary. He died on a cross in between two other rebels, and he took the place on the cross of the main, the key rebel, Barabbas. I'm of the opinion that Jesus did, in fact, break the law, and for me, that does not sully his purity or his perfection. After Jesus, the early church, there were Christians living in the Roman Empire, and they were martyred for their faith. They were killed. For them to proclaim Jesus is Lord was this political statement, a dangerous political statement, because when you say Jesus is Lord, you're implying that Caesar or the emperor is not. It was a political statement. It was outlawed by the empire, and countless people died by the sword for refusing to recant or apostatize. And ever since then, over the course of the past you know, 2,000 years, Christians have had different levels of coziness with the law. 
And it depends really about the time and the location on where they live, right? You think about during the 1800s, you could find believers who were against slavery and not just the institution of slavery, but they were fighting against the laws of the land that not only allowed slavery, but it sustained slavery. Laws like the Fugitive Slave Act, which was a federal law that said if you came across a slave who had escaped, you were required by law to return them to their master. You could not help them escape. There are so many different unjust laws that were not followed by abolitionists, and Christians were included in that group. In the 1960s in America, the Freedom Riders challenged local laws that enforced segregation on buses, and many were arrested for crimes such as trespassing, unlawful public assembly, and other Jim Crow laws. So were these Christians guilty of breaking the law? Technically, yes, they were. But I think they were justified in doing so because they lived out their life as they were devoted to Jesus, they were following their convictions, and they sparked legislators into action. Across the globe today, even as we speak right now, on Sunday morning, there's Christians who live oppressed by their local governments. They are actively persecuted simply by having a faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of these people stay underground and stay hidden in order uh, to maintain their resistance to the government. Which brings us to America. Brings us to right here, right now, 2020, where, you know, we declare that we are one nation under God. We're a Christian nation found on, founded on Christian principles. In fact, we have enshrined in our Constitution our First Amendment right to have the freedom of religion. And so as I've discussed this with a lot of friends and family, I've gotten pushback here that says, you know what, I think this question, is it ever appropriate for a Christian to break the law? I think that may be irrelevant to us today because our laws are, are founded based upon the Bible, right? Can we assume that there's just this perfect overlap in kingdom principles and our laws of the land? And I would caution against that fallacy this morning. I would caution against that fantasy because it has the potential to turn into idolatry. And so what happens when the rubber meets the road for you and I? How do we make this practical today? We're leaving the world of hypotheticals. We're leaving the realm of history. We're moving into the present day. What laws are appropriate for us to break as Christians? I'm not going to sit up here and read through the Constitution or read through the different law books of our country or our state and go through which laws I think are appropriate to break. I, you know, I'm not going to put Pastor Jay's level of, you know, confidence on each law. That would kind of be fun, but uh, take a while. So um, what we should do, what we should apply to our lives this morning is that we should think through our ethics. We should think through our faith and consider what types of laws are harmful and inconsistent with kingdom values. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. 
So many, many people, many Christians who have gone down this route of, of nonviolent civil disobedience are living out this verse right here. They're speaking up for those whose voice is silenced, whose rights are being trampled upon. And I want to challenge you right here, no matter what you know, level of authority you have, no matter how much sway or power or influence you have, I want to challenge you to keep this holy and righteous and God-given awareness for the people around you who might be oppressed. And when you see it, speak up and speak out. Even if we're not breaking the law just by sharing our opinion, when we stand up for those who are oppressed, we're naturally taking some risk. People will judge us for our motives. People will question our faithfulness. But I think when we do that, we are becoming more Christ-like. We look at people who are being oppressed and we say, I see you. Even if the world has forgotten about you, I remember you. I will fight for you because God values you. And so after we've gone through, you know, just these past couple minutes of looking at our faith traditions, rich history with civil disobedience, I want to take a minute and look at the Bible and get some biblical perspective on authority. What authority is legitimate in our lives? And what are God's expectations for our submission to or our resistance of the powers that be? I think when you look at the entirety of Scripture, there's a lot of passages that talk about authority and how we're called to live in a society, a civil society together with, with people who have different beliefs. But I think Martin Luther sums up the entirety of Scripture with a paradox. He says, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. At the very same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So how do we navigate this tension? That we've been given this freedom to... Uh, to live our life however we see fit, and yet at the very same time we are called, we are commanded to lay down our freedoms in submission to the people around us. There's a, another frequently cited passage from Romans chapter 13 that talks about authority. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So how do we rectify this passage with the accounts of all the biblical figures, all the people throughout history who have broken the law? I think there's a little bit of nuance here. It's not black and white, a lot of gray area here. And like I said before, they didn't necessarily resist the punishment that followed. So let's look at two different realms of authority, one of which obviously is the government. We've been talking about this this morning. But the second one I think has interesting applications and parallels to our conversation. And uh, this realm of authority would be the family. Out of, out of the Ten Commandments, one of them addresses the authority of parents in a family, right? Honor your father and mother. And so I asked this morning, is it ever appropriate, do you think, 
for a child who is a believer to disobey or dishonor their mother and their father? The way that we answer that question could help us, I think, when we get back to talking about the government. In Paul's letters in the New Testament, in two separate places, he draws a little bit deeper on these family dynamics. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he quotes the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two things I want to point out here. First is that while these instructions seem kind of basic or run-of-the-mill or obvious to a lot of readers today, I think there really are some radical ideas being presented here by Paul. In the ancient culture, what was commonplace was for respect to obviously be given to the fathers in a, a patriarchal society, that the fathers had all the influence, the children wielded none. What was not commonplace in these ancient cultures were these instructions that Paul includes here that actually limits the authority on parents, on fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So this isn't like this blank check for their behavior as so many other cultural and moral influences were in the days of the patriarchy. See, the role of the man in the household went virtually unchecked up until the New Testament. And so men are addressed in a way in which Paul is saying, you have a responsibility here to act in a way um, that honors and values the people that you are caring for. And if the men have a responsibility, if the men have the ability to choose, am I going to follow down this path that honors the Lord, that lives out kingdom values, so do then the children in these passages. Paul is giving them agency here to make that choice for themselves to live up to these ideals of the kingdom of God, right? To honor their mother and their father, to submit to the authority figures in their lives. And Paul is saying to the children as well, you have the ability to discern for yourselves about which path to choose. Secondly, as we talk about these passages, listen to this quote from Greg Howe. Before, before I read it, I want to give you a little background. Greg was a contributor to a book that I read called Following Jesus Without Dishonoring Your Parents. There were six different contributors. All came from an Asian-American background. Greg is Chinese-American. And so in the Asian-American culture, obvious, obviously they value honor they value duty, which is different from our Western culture where we value individual uh, freedoms. And this is what Greg pulls out as he's studying these passages from Paul. Sorry, here it is. He writes, It is important to recognize the context of Paul's teaching. He writes to a Christian audience in both 
epistles. Paul assumes, therefore, that the commands issued by parents and obeyed by children will be commands consistent with scriptural principles and oriented to kingdom priorities. Greg and the other contributors to this book, from a practical standpoint, they're wrestling with this idea of honor, honoring their parents. You know, many of their parents had were first-generation immigrants. They had come to America. They had sacrificed so much in life and saved up money in order to send their children to law school or medical school. They placed these expectations on their children. But Greg and a couple of these other authors were like, but I feel called into ministry. If I feel that God is calling me into ministry, but my parents have these expectations of going into law school, how do I navigate that tension? Do I dishonor my parents in order to honor God? And that's the context in which Paul is writing. And so the, the bottom line is when power is exercised by those in authority, obedience to God um, when power is exercised by those in authority and obedience or honor is demanded of those subjects, it is in the context that the powers that be are acting in good faith, in obedience to God, and living out God's call on their lives. So I believe that not only applies to the, the power structure of the family, the authority of moms and dads, but I believe that applies to different authorities such as the government. Listen to what First Peter chapter 2 says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So the emperor, or the president, or your parents, or your board of directors, or whatever authority figure it is that's in your life that you're trying to figure out how you can submit to them, each and every leader has a God-given responsibility to act in ways that are wise and just and scriptural. And if they are not, I believe therein lies the freedom to stand up against these injustices, to stand up against the abuses of power, to stand up against the corruption that may be found in our world. Biblical scholar David Weeks says, the challenge for Christians is empowering the government to do what they are capable of doing, which is preserving order and securing justice, while restraining them from doing what they cannot do well or should not do at all. And so ultimately, we should conclude that those in power should follow God and that those under authority should also follow God. There's one final thing that I want to hit on this morning as we ask the question, is it ever appropriate for a Christian to break the law? And that's this idea of idolatry. You know, we mentioned it early on and I want to bring things kind of back full circle because idolatry is this idea where we take good things and important things and we make them ultimate things. I want to reflect on how we do that in our own lives. Pastor Jim Mullins down in Redemption Tempe, he's 
propose this concept of, of political religions. I think it's important to talk about as we enter the 2020 presidential race. But political religions is when we have taken something good, something even from the Bible, something from the creation narrative, and we've made an idol out of that one thing. We've placed that one thing and prioritized it above Jesus. Those idols include progress, identity, responsibility, and security. This happens all over the political spectrum. It's not just a conservative issue. It's not just a liberal issue. And so as we're addressing idols this morning, it might be helpful for you and for me to name what we are tempted to put in Jesus' place. If it's a political religion, have we converted to a political religion where our new gospel, our new scripture is whatever news channel that we prefer? And our new savior is that political figure who promises deliverance for our party. As Christians, we believe in the preeminence of Jesus, the, the supremacy of Jesus over all things, over human rulers, over cosmic powers, everything. He's the ultimate authority in our lives. He reigns supreme. We get that from Colossians chapter 1 which says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is sovereign over all corners of the universe. And when it comes to authority, whether that's found in the government, whether that's found in the family structure, or anywhere else, they all exist for him. And so this morning, or this week, or next week, if you ever find yourself torn between obeying Jesus and obeying the law, we must choose Jesus every single time. Peter puts it so plainly in Acts 5.29 as he stands before the Sanhedrin and he says, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And I want to invite the band to come back up this morning as we respond in, in that news, that proclamation that we believe that Jesus is Lord of all, Lord of my life. Lord of this nation, Lord of this world. And we want to look for places in our lives where we have not given him full reign. Places where we have silenced his voice, minimized his influence. We want to magnify Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, hear our hearts this morning. We come to you humbled. We, we submit our lives to you because you are Lord of all. You hold the ultimate power, the ultimate uh, sovereignty, not just in my life personally, not just in this church, but across the globe. And we want to honor you. Father, 
Forgive us, Lord, from the times where we have taken you off of the throne. We've put other things, other priorities ahead of you. We've drifted away in our faith. We've put politics. We've put um, reputation. We've put all these selfish things ahead of you. We confess this morning. We ask for forgiveness. God, we want to submit to you. We want to obey you. No matter what that costs in our world, no matter what the law says, no matter what our neighbor says, no matter what culture says, help us to live boldly, passionately as we follow you. As we share your love with the people around us. God, we don't break these laws or we don't protest these things for selfish reasons. We, we do that because there is injustice in our world. It is broken, it is hurting, and it needs you. Help us to spread your love to the people around us. Help us to be compassionate to those who are oppressed. Help us to listen and have awareness for the people that we have for far too long ignored. We want to be so faithful to you, Jesus, that we ignore everything else. We're so devoted to you, Lord, in such a radical way that there is no rival, there is no debate about what we're going to choose to worship. Meet us here, Jesus. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. As we close this morning, I want to read one more passage from the book of Philippians chapter 2. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My prayer for our church this week is that we take any idol that we have created, we have placed as the ultimate spot ahead of Jesus, we cast those aside. Where we've taken things like politics, we've taken things like uh, selfishness, and we've placed them ahead of Jesus. We want to magnify Jesus in our church, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. May God be glorified in us as we live as citizens and share his love and his character with the people around us. We love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website 
at northbiblechurch.com.